happy you're with us this morning. Oh, hello. Good morning. Um, would you stand with us if you're able? We're going to start some worship together. We're so happy you're here with us today. Raising up the 
Spirit of the living God, Spirit of the living God, we're leaning into all you are. Everything else can wait. Spirit of the living God, Spirit of the living God, come now and breathe upon our hearts. Come now and have your way. It's when you speak, when you move, when you do what only you can do. It changes us, it changes what we see, what we see. When you come in the room, when you do what only you can do, it changes us, it changes what we see, what My name is Ryan Sylvia. I am the director of youth ministries here at La Jolla Community Church. I absolutely love that song. One of the wonderful things about being a part of this church, about serving our great and wonderful God, is that he is always moving. He is always working. So I hope you can join us and be a part of some of the wonderful things that God is doing in the UTC area. On your way in, you should have received one of these wonderful little bulletins designed by our awesome media director, Josh. If you look right in the middle, there's a perforation that will split that bad boy right in half. And if you tear the top part off, our hope and our prayers, you take this top half home. If you notice on the back, it has a little invitation to our conversations. We're not doing conversations this week. In lieu of our conversations, we're going to have our congregational meeting. So feel free after the service, grab yourself a snack, go outside, have a bite to eat, and then come on back in for our congregational meeting. 
but every other week after our first service, we have conversations, and we would love, love, love for you to invite a friend, invite a neighbor, invite a family member to our conversations. It's an awesome time where we get to dig deep into the Word, chat with our friends, chat with people who are going through similar life stages of, of us. So please take this top half home, invite somebody to conversations, invite them to some of the wonderful things that is going on here at La Jolla Community Church. This bottom half of the card, this is for you. Our hope and prayer is that you would fill this out here while you're here during my announcements. I promise I'm not going to get upset if you're filling it out while I talk. But this first side says get connected. This is how we get you plugged in and involved in some of the awesome ministries that we've got going on here at La Jolla Community Church. So please take a moment, fill that out, let us know how we can get you connected and plugged in. And right on that back side it says let us pray for you. We at La Jolla Community Church believe in the power of prayer. I love every single week going over each prayer request and praying over everybody in the church. I'm going to put them on blast because I love him so much. We've been praying every single week for Kellen to pass the bar. Unfortunately, Kellen didn't get the best news this week, so we're going to keep praying even harder for the next time. Love you, Kellen. You're awesome. But please, please take a moment. Fill out that prayer card. Let us know how we can pray for you, how we can love on you, how we can care for you. And you can take that card and drop it off in the offering box along with the offering envelopes directly in front of you. Well, thank you so much for joining us on our wonderful service this morning. And I would love to invite up Pastor Steve to lead us in a message. Thank you so much. All right, well, good morning. Uh, can you believe that we're in June? June 2022. I keep thinking it must be June 2021 because it's gone by way too fast to be in 2022. Oh my gosh. Uh, all kinds of people in June go through transitions, right? Typically uh, graduations and uh, transitions from you know, preschool to kindergarten. That's a big moment here. You know, we have this uh, preschool and it's a big deal that the the older kids, the big kids, uh, the, the four-year-olds, are, are kind of big people on campus right now. Uh, you can tell. They have a little swagger, you know, a little sense of, <laughs> I know what's going on here. And they look at the three-year-olds and go, oh, my gosh. Remember when I was little? I remember way back when I was that age and stage. And we do a graduation for the kids, you know. And it's just it's very inspiring. And uh, you think, all right, this is the first probably of a lifetime, hopefully a lifetime, of really neat transitions for them. Uh, we tend to think of transitions uh, as official moments when you get recognition, there's a confirmation of what you've done. If you hear clicking, it's just my mic is doing some weird things, so it's not my brain uh, on <laughs> overdrive. So those kinds of transitions we're used to. Uh, I remember uh, years ago going to a, a, a graduation uh, from MCRD, uh, the Marine uh, Recruiting Depot uh, training area. And it was fascinating uh, because I, I went uh, as a guest of the guy that was in the Commandant, Bill Leedsell. And uh, he had a guy named Keith Williams, who was the Sergeant Major. And, and Bill was a, um, a guy sort of out of his element, in the sense that he'd gone to the Naval Academy, uh, he'd gone to Yale Law School, he was an expert on the, on the law of war, and he was the one who had to answer the questions, if we find Osama bin Laden, are we allowed to kill him? So he had these kinds of responsibilities at the UN, at the Hague, but he always wanted to be a real rough and ready Marine, so he said, hey, I really want to do some Marine kind of stuff. And they said, okay, you can be in charge of MCRD. 
And so he's walking around, and uh, he's just a super humble guy, but he, he had presence about him, but he's very humble. And he's walking around, uh, Sergeant Major Keith Williams said, uh, Colonel Leedsow, would you look behind you, please? And he looked behind him, and from wherever he could see on the campus, all these guys were standing like this. And he said, sir, you have to dismiss them. You have to say at ease when you go by. And otherwise, they stand there all day like that. And so he's like, oh, yeah, my bad. Okay, yeah, 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 go ahead. But so Keith Williams was this incredible guy. He was a magnet for kids, and he would make grown men cry. You know, he was just his presence. And so he was the guy basically uh, overseeing this graduation. So we walked around, saw these new guys getting off buses, guys doing various exercises, and some somewhere in that process. And then we get to go to the graduation, and it was night and day. It was night and day, seeing the the way these young men and women were holding themselves and presenting themselves at the end of that. Is it 16 weeks or something like that? Some long process. Uh, not that long when you think about what they're going to do, but it's a long process in terms of for them. Uh, and it was a major confirmation of their adulthood. That was one of the most meaningful, moving things for me, is to see the moms and dads out there that as they were looking at these kids, some of them were saying, thank God this isn't his induction into prison. Thank goodness, you know, she's not, you know, uh, eloping and, and, you know, doing something crazy with her life. Wow, I'm so excited that my daughter, my son, has done this noble thing. And then after the graduation, the way that the men and women presented themselves to their parents, they weren't distant, they were just different. All I'm saying is that they had a sense of having achieved something, and something was being confirmed to them was, that was incredibly intentional. It's a volunteer service, right? Is that clicking driving you crazy? Okay, I need a mic then. I'll use a mic instead. Better too, because I can bust some moves, you know, every once in a while. <laughs> this kind of thing. All right, how's that? Um, so intentionally, they had, they had enlisted in the Marine Corps. Intentionally, these moms and dads bring these little tiny kids to our preschool. And both sets of parents are absolutely filled with joy at that moment of confirmation, that transition moment, that graduation. Uh, this place looks like, a, uh, it's, it looks like a, a conference for high-tech gear. When you come to the graduation here, it's high-tech gear on display. Everybody has the latest and greatest version. Everybody is a professional now, videographer. And they crowd to the front. And it's just a crack up because you think, they're capturing this magic moment. For these kids, the parents of those young people who are graduating from MCRD's process feel the same way. High school kids all over San Diego, college kids all over San Diego, across the country, around the world, undergraduates, graduate students, people doing postdoctoral programs. It's going to be this big moment for them. Do you know that at the end of that process, whatever level of graduation, especially the ones who are in a kind of a terminal graduation, they don't plan to do any more formal education after this, 73% of those people have no idea what they're going to do. And 73% of those people don't do what they have been studying and training to do. That's not a fail, that's just a fact. And this fact comes from uh, Stanford University, where they have worked this program called uh, Designing Your Life. Started as a, a product design engineering thing within Stanford's curriculum. 
it got so popular that students wanted from every other school, uh, they wanted to be a part of this because it was so brilliant what these people were doing. So it became, they opened it up, they said, okay, we'll do a, a track that's a non-technical track, Designing Your Life. It became, and it still is the most popular course at Stanford University. When the former president of Stanford was gonna retire from being the president, he signed up for the course because he said, I have no idea what I'm going to do <laughs> once I step down as president. I know I'm done doing this, I, I could stay, but I know it's time for me to do something else. So in the process of doing all the research on this, they found out that 73% of the people from that auspicious, impressive place were at wit's end as to what they're going to do. Maybe they had this aspiration, I'm gonna work for Google, I'm gonna work for, you know, and so there's a slew of them. It's thick up in the Bay Area. You know, those, those expensive condos, the cranes hovering over the city of San Francisco are all there to house these young, aspiring people who want to work in high-tech companies. But even within that system, they have no idea what they want to do because a, a very short time after they start working there, they're looking for graduate schools, typically an MBA or something. My point of, of talking about this is that most of us don't have those moments of confirmation of, wow, look at what you've done. Wow, the kids have grown up, they've gone to college, they're, they're, they've, they've gone on to the rest of their life. We're going to have a ceremony for you, we're going to be praying over you, we're going to be celebrating, we have a party for you. No, we just do these things, or we find ourselves wandering in the midst of doing those things. Every young couple brings the baby home thinking, wow, this is so amazing, it's so fantastic, and pretty soon they're so exhausted, they go, how many kids do we have again? Because this feels like six, and it's one little child, I think, you know? And the parents hardly know each other because now they're roommates slugging it out, raising these kids. Uh, the person who's had this illustrious career, they get a box of stuff, they go home, and pretty soon they're going, oh, now, now what do I do? My point on this is that these moments are so important because it's, it's an excuse to stop and say, who am I, where am I, where have I been, where am I going? And the power of that, that program at Stanford, and, and a book that came out of it, Designing Your Life, by Dave Evans and Bill Burnett, one of whom uh, says, in the opening of that book, it came out probably 10 years ago, says, I am a follower of Jesus. Uh, I, I came to Stanford as an undergraduate. I got involved in this process. I became uh, an executive. I went off and did things. I came back as a professor. And what motivates me is my faith. The other guy, uh, his partner in, in this, running this whole program and in the book, uh, would say, I'm an atheist. And I do this because I think this is what makes me feel most alive. Now you see, both of them are saying something absolutely right on. God has created us with the desire and the capacity to want to feel alive and do something about it. Now, if you know Christ, uh, then you're saying, I get why I feel this, because this is how Christ has created me, and why he saved me, and what he's doing to sanctify me, and how I'm growing up in my knowledge and love of him, and a capacity to live for him. The other guy's saying, hey, that's great for you, but you know, um, I'm fine here. Where that's all going to go, I don't know. What I can tell you, though, is that they're both operating on something true that comes from God alone, that we are created to have a sense of design as it relates to life, and it gets beaten out of us by the circumstances of life. To the point that we say, who am, I to have a, who am I to design my life? Who do you think you are to design your life? Think of all the waves of immigrants who came into this country. My family members coming to Ellis Island, you know, uh, and, and if they said, well, I'm here because I'm here to design my life, they would have been laughed out of the country. Who, you're, <laughs> who are you to design your life? Only rich people get to design a life. The fact is, rich people don't know how to design their life. They're just trying to keep up, right? 
powerful people trying to figure out, oh my gosh, who's, who's coming up on me from behind? All of us have this deep desire to, to do it. None of us know how to do it for the most part. And so this program at Stanford really happened accidentally because somebody said, we need to figure out how to, how to create a hinge for a computer. Hey, let's ask those guys. Those guys figured it out, and after a while they said, hey, let's start a company, and they started IDEO. IDEO, one of the most incredible product design companies on the planet. They've designed everything you can imagine that, you, that don't even go together, just things from every possible industry. And it's sort of a design accident that these engineers who were designing on purpose found out that there was all these needs for them that they didn't know, and eventually came back around to the soft sciences, and that is, how do you help a person design their life? This is old news according to the Bible. Very, very old news. But thank God he's raised up people like these guys at Stanford, these men and women, to remind the people who are created in the image of God and being saved by him that this is our normal identity and destiny. There probably won't be a ceremony that you'll be asked to stand up and receive a piece of paper or something giving recognition as to what you've gone through. But every one of us desperately need that. So where does the responsibility fall? Not on an institution, not necessarily on some formal program. It falls on us to say, what does it look like for me to accept this gift from God to design my life? That's what we're going to be talking about for this month of June. Designing your life in Christ. Now we can borrow language from you know, Stanford and we can borrow it from any number of places. And none of that is poaching or misappropriating because all we're doing is we're saying people know this is true because this is how God has designed us. We're simply giving a name to it. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So designing your life is a fancy way of saying, I want to be a disciple. Now let me ask you this question. What is your response to this statement? I want to know Christ. When you hear me say that, uh, I want to know Christ, what comes to your mind? Perhaps uh, it makes you feel curious. Uh, perhaps it makes you feel cautious. Oh, no, no. I came to church trying to figure out maybe if there's something here for me. Now he's asking me these penetrating personal questions. You know, I want to know Christ. Uh, maybe it's a critical response. Oh, brother, really? I'm looking here for some wisdom. Not, I don't need to know Christ. Or do you embrace it in your life? Yes, that's me. You just said what I think and what I feel. I want to know Christ. That's why I'm here. Um, would you like to explore that statement, or would you just prefer to dismiss it? Or, as many people do, would you say, oh, absolutely, yeah, thumbs up on that. Uh, I would want to do that. I think that's really important. And then you change the subject and move on. This is what the church has done historically, because we have people who do that sort of thing. We have priests and pastors and religious-type people, professionals. We pay them, and we assign them the responsibility to figure this stuff out. But the rest of us are just kind of going along to get along. Or after a while, we realize there's no there there, so we leave it. And we say, that was an interesting part of my background, but it's irrelevant to me. Um, it's a big question. Uh, what does this mean to you? What does this phrase mean to you? I want to know Christ. I ask it because it's a statement of value. I want to know Christ is not a boast, is it? Otherwise you say, well, you know, I know Christ. You should know him too. Well, probably you wouldn't be able to understand him, but, <laughs> but I want to know Christ is not a boast. It's a confession of faith. I, I, I believe there's something here and I want to know. It, it's, it expresses an, a value. I believe that there's a greater value than me trying to figure out my life or run my life. 
It's a solution to a problem. Well, I guess I should know Christ then. Uh, it's the answer to an opportunity. Wow, if anybody would know how to do something creative, it would be Christ. It's, it's, a, it's a way of breaking out of a conundrum. My gosh, I'm in this perpetual cycle of conflict within me and around me, in my marriage, my family, at work, in the world. How, did, how does anybody break that impasse? And you go, oh, hey, I want to know Christ. There's all kinds of responses to this, right? To me, it sounds humble and vulnerable. It's one of those moments when a person says, I, I want to know Christ. They're opening up their core and their center. It's very vulnerable. I don't have it together. I, I need to know Christ. When you were a kid, did you ever see your mother cry? And if you did, did it freak you out? To see your mother in tears and you think, oh no, the rock of my world, the person who knows everything, can do everything, uh, or your dad cry. I remember one time as a, a young pastor, I was in a meeting, all the, it was a conference actually, a, a, a retreat with all these leaders, uh, and uh, there was such a matter, such, so much pushback against the pastor in this situation, and he was doing the right thing. Uh, he just broke down in tears. Uh, my, my jaw dropped. Uh, not that I, I, you know, I, I would think he wouldn't have deep feelings, but it was, such a, it was so not him. Um, he was like nine feet tall. He had a voice slightly deeper than God's. He was, he was ahead of everything. If I mentioned all that, I mean, he was the head of, you know, chairman of the Board of World Vision, of Christianity Today, of a seminary. I mean, he's just a very imposing guy. Good guy. Go for it. Strong guy. But he had come to this point where he was just so frustrated with the fact that people were at cross purposes, not just with each other, but with the gospel. And this church was getting ready to take a big step in the right direction, and he had so much pushback from people who were afraid of that. It just reduced him to tears. See, it's vulnerable to say, I want to know Christ. Do you have the capacity to say that? Or would you rather say, well, no, I believe in Christ. I, I think th great, th great things about Christ. Or do you say, no, I desperately want to know Christ. And would that freak out some of the people around you? The equivalent of watching your mom or your dad or some strong person break down into tears and say, I'm just so desolate or frustrated or stuck or I've come to the end of what I think I can do and I know there's something great out there. I just, at this point, can't seem to get it together. Powerful, powerful moment like that. So I want to ask that person who makes that kind of statement, I want to know Christ, why? What does that mean to you? Have you, have you been asking this all along and, and you keep asking it to stay fresh? Or have you been trying to do it on your own steam and now finally you're asking this? I want to know, what, what's the story here? Is that even possible to achieve, to know Christ? Is it a, a fool's errand? Is it a total life folly? When you look at the incredible institutions worldwide, in our country, uh, especially places like England and Europe, these massive cathedrals, these pla great places of learning that all were started by people who said, literally, it's a, you can see it in the charter, I want to know Christ. Harvard University was built on a statement, we want to train men to help others know Christ. Princeton University, Dartmouth, a mission school for American Indians. You can go on, 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 on. So let's put it in, in context. Uh, this is from Philippians chapter 3. 
This is Paul the Apostle speaking. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Are you thinking, Paul, why would you say that? You've been trained by Gamaliel, the greatest sage, uh, scholar, rabbi of his day. You know the word of God inside and out. You have now come to know Christ. How is it that you could say, as if you don't know already, I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Why? Because in his own life, he had come to a place where nobody was saying, here's your diploma, here's the confirmation of the program you've just gone through. It was really hard, but you succeeded. He was just in that place of life to said, you know, where he could say, I've come to that place where the design of my life needs to be updated. I need to draw on everything I've learned and experienced previously and put it out there, put it out there before the Lord to say, in this season, Lord, what should that look like? Now, he didn't need to suffer. Christ has already suffered once and forever. But he was saying, am I willing to follow you in this vision of what I think I'm supposed to do and how you've equipped me and what my heart tells me the world needs, knowing that it will probably cause me to suffer? Well, if you're willing to suffer, I guess I am too. Uh, Well, I know, Lord, it's not just me being awesome. It's me being empowered by your resurrection power, right? It's not me saying, well, I know I have assurance of salvation. It's him saying, of course, I know I have that assurance. I'm in Christ. But I want to actually experience it in the fullest and even forever. I don't want to leave anything on the table when I leave this world. Do you follow this reasoning? And all of a sudden, it's not not a pathetic, oh, gee, I'm afraid to face life. It's this incredible, wonderful sense of, you know, there's more for me in Christ. Now, more for me could be more suffering, more humiliation. Because from this point on, it didn't go well for Paul. He was graduating not into a bigger and better job and a more wonderful life. He's graduating himself, having been led by the Holy Spirit, to do the thing that most people say, are you out of your mind? You could play it safe, it'd be okay. A friend of mine started a company. It was a simple company. Uh, He wanted to make stuff that he could eat so he could ride his bike further. So he could ski more during the day. He could hike further. And he made this product. And um, in the midst, midst of making it, he, he went to his mom's house. He lived in a studio apartment in Berkeley, a converted garage, had just enough room for his, his tour bike, his mountain bike, his piano, his trumpet, all of his mountaineering gear, his skis, and that was it. And on a 110-mile ride that he thought was supposed to be an 80-mile ride out in Livermore, Hotter than blazes. He's like, oh, the fifth power bar. I can't, just can't do it. So he, he said, there's got to be a better way. So he calls him his mom, who lived in Hayward, and said, Mom, can I come by and use your kitchen? I need to make some, something that would be an energy thing better than a power bar. She goes, yeah, sure. And so he does that. And I, I won't bore you with all the details of his life and the name of the company or anything, but I'll just tell you, at one point he was so busy doing it, and other bikers and other mountaineers and climbers were saying, hey, can I get some of that? So he started selling it, and then he realized, I need help managing this and marketing it. So he asked a friend of his, this woman, not a date or anything, just a girlfriend, just a friend, who had a degree in marketing. He had a degree in business from Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo. 
and he was a musician and artist, but he, he, was, he was just absolutely committed to doing this thing. And so he said, look, I'll give you half the company, you be the marketing person, I'll be the, the brains and the visionary and, you know, behind the product. And so it's going, 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 going great, several years into it now, every food company is going, oh no, this is not good, and we're going to squash this guy like a bug. So one of the big food companies offered him at the time, this is 25 years ago, uh, almost 30 years ago, $60 million. And he was like, whoa, sick for a guy who lives in a studio apartment. Now he's married to his wife and they wanted to start a family. And he's like, $60 million, this is awesome. But the night before the deal was to be formalized, sign all the papers, he woke up going, dear Lord, what have I done? Because he said, Lord, I know that they're going to move this company out of Berkeley, California. And he was emulating Alice Waters at Chez Panisse. He was doing all organic stuff. All these great sources was perfect and pristine. Had massive integrity. He said, you know, they're going to move it. No offense to the Midwest, but somewhere in the Midwest, it's going to be a big factory. It's going to be another power bar. And I'm going to be a wealthy guy. And I'm going to be ashamed of myself because every climber and mountaineer and athlete is going to look at me and go, you sold out. So he turned to his wife and said, hey, what do you think? She goes, hey, nobody's going to hold it against you. You've worked hard. This is awesome. But if you think you shouldn't do it, then I'll, I'll support that. He's like, oh, thanks. He thought, this is going to be the hardest day of my life. I'm going to tell all these big, powerful, important people who are me, promising me I will never have the middle shelf at Vaughn's. They're going to squash me like a bug. So he called up his partner and said, hey, you know, I think we should rethink the deal. I, 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 let's not sell it. She said, you know, from now on, Gary, talk to me through my attorney. He's like, what? She goes, I'm cashing out. You owe me $30 million. Uh, he, was, he was sick. And he thought, I knew I should have called an attorney to put the contract together. But I was trying to save 30 bucks or something, you know, that kind of thing. So sure enough, he, he said, okay, babe, it's you and me, and we, we owe her $30 million. So every time you pick up a cliff bar, just remember that this was somebody saying, I'm going to put it all on the line. And it happened because Gary and Kat prayed about it. They said, Lord, what do you want us to do? Everybody tells us this is the stupidest thing we could ever do. They're congratulating us for the smartest thing they think we've ever done and will ever do. And we're telling them that we're not going to do that. This is the equivalent of Paul saying, I'm willing to suffer for Christ. Now you might say, that's not equivalent. Well, it's equivalent for them. They didn't see this as being a big, awesome thing. They saw this as being a big crash and burn, but at least they'd live with themselves that we didn't sell out. And so they didn't. And now you have an amazing product that still continues to this day and blesses millions of people. And every time I see a cliff bar, I just smile. I just laugh and I think, oh my gosh, this is awesome. So Paul says it like this, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I'm not done and God's not done with me yet. So I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. This is his initiative. I live under his sovereignty. He's blessed me not to impress other people with how awesome I think I am, 
but to bless other people because of how awesome he is in me. He's designed me for this, and I have this incredible opportunity, in a sense, to have expressed my human agency to design my life in Christ. If I choose to do this, he's okay with it. As long as I'm honoring and glorifying him and blessing people, he doesn't really care what I do. Now, that might be a shock to you. When it comes to knowing God's will, it's almost like he doesn't really care what you do. Don't get all tied up in knots. That, oh, do I, do I, how, can I, how do I know God's will? Just do the stuff that Jesus did. And I don't mean, you know, okay, I'll raise the dead first thing in the morning. You know, I'm saying just do the stuff you see in his word. Why? Because there's not just one way to know God's will. There's one word, one spirit, one Lord, one, one road to salvation. All those are singular. But in terms of your life, there's a lot of great ways you could live your life. Um, a, a, a family member, is a, he was an orthopedic surgeon. He retired just last year, but about five years ago, he was, he was uh, snowboarding, and he broke his wrist. Now, he's one of the best orthopods in Orange County. And I said, how do you feel about it? He goes, I'm kind of excited, because if I can't go back to surgery, I can't wait to learn how to play guitar. And he wanted to do so many other creative things in his life. He said, I feel like this big responsibility. I can't say no to this thing, because I'm awesome at it. I was walking down Babel Island, Marine Avenue on Babel Island with him one day, and this, this lady came up to us and said, oh, Dr. Fisher, I'm so sorry I didn't have you do my surgery. <laughs> He's like, oh, well, uh, gee, that's fine, you know. And, how are you doing? Well, it didn't turn out well, and I had to do this. He's like, oh, wow, okay. So now he's in this whole difficult conversation. He goes, well, take care, you know. And we're walking away. I said, what was that all about? He said, well, uh, she, she thought like I was too expensive, so she went somewhere else. Now, here's the guy who's so good at what he did. The pressure for him was, I don't want to not do it because then I'm letting down everybody who believes in me. You see, you have so many ways to live your life. Do not limit yourself. Don't say, oh, if I'm really committed to Christ, I'll become a pastor. How about just be a pastor in the life you're living? Well, if I really want to know God's will, I'm going to move to Africa. And you might be kind of a pain in the rear for all the people in Africa if you move there, actually. Uh, another white guy shows up trying to save us. Let's take care of him so he didn't kill himself. You know, they think this is the uttermost parts of the earth, you know, not, not Africa. So he's saying, not that I've obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I pressed on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. I'm not done yet. Well, you're the Apostle Paul. Yes, I know. However, I'm the Apostle Paul. I'm a walking, talking contradiction. I keep seeing my life as a problem when really it's a mystery, and God's revealing that mystery to me that I just need to trust Him and keep going and growing. Do you feel this at all? That maybe you're doing everything right, and it's looking really good, and you just have this sense that there's more, and I don't know what the more is. Don't put that more in, a, in, a, in an unrealistic perspective. Put it in the sense of, given I, what I know about me, maybe more is just different. Me in Christ doing this, not that. A dear friend of ours left a great job at Microsoft to teach high school math. She had degrees from Stanford and MIT. She's had this phenomenal position. She's in charge of a division. But she, in her heart of hearts, just knows God wants me to teach high school math. She's a single mom. 
She said, okay, I believe God wants me to do it. I'm going to do it. She goes for it. She quits her job. She gets a teaching credential, and then COVID hits. She can't work for two years. She's thinking, did I miss God's will in this? And then she realized, no, it was God's will that I have two years with my daughter teaching her math at home, <laughs> you know, supporting her, and then segueing into my new, and now she's, you know, a high school math teacher. I don't know what your life's supposed to look like, but you don't either. So why put limits on it and conditions on it? Why not do what Paul is doing here and say, hey, I want to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. And I don't consider myself self yet to have taken hold of it. Or maybe I know I t- I've taken hold of it exactly as I was supposed to, but I'm at the end of that stage of my life, and now I'm ready for the next thing. But I'm so comfortable doing this thing, I don't dare leave it to do the next thing. Or I wonder if, if I'm just frustrated, and I, if I quit this thing, I'll feel like I've made a big error. Do you see the paralysis of analysis in this? This is where the rubber hits the road in terms of discipleship and designing your life. We have this crazy idea in our culture that what you should do whatever you feel passionate about. Do you know that passion never happens until you actually commit to something? Because if it's passion, it's not passion, it's a daydream. The person who says, I've loved my time in Italy, I think I'll open up an Italian restaurant. Oh, have you ever worked in a restaurant? Uh, No. Have you ever cooked for more than two people? No, but still, it's just pasta. Okay, then. You know, so some of the things we do are, are a little crazy because we don't think it's okay to just do a version of us in another way. We think it has to be so different and grandiose. Passion comes from testing things and saying, I feel like this is a good fit for me, and then you commit. So that person, instead of opening an Italian restaurant, you say, hey, why don't you host a bunch of dinners, Italian dinners, and let people show up and order what they want? Well, that'd be kind of scary. Yeah, every night at a restaurant, it's like that. And so do a little prototyping and figure out what that looks like. And then, but the idea being here, that if, if I haven't yet taken hold of it, I guess I have to learn something. And so Paul says, but one thing I do, I know I can do this, I can commit. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I'll press on toward the goal. And in that process, I will find my passion in this next stage of my life. Passion is a payoff, not a premise. The process itself is what you do to try to understand what is next for you. If you wait to be passionate, I can guarantee you, just like 73% of graduates don't know what they're going to do and don't do what they've studied, as a profession, 100% of people say, I don't know what I'm passionate about. Luxury and leisure is the first thing that comes to mind, but after that, I, you know. Right, can you imagine how bored out of your gourd you'd be if you had to live in luxury and leisure? We have some friends who were stuck because of COVID in, in the Bahamas for another 15 days. That would be most people's idea of heaven. But they said, you know, after being there for 10 days, and as gorgeous as it is in this beautiful place we were staying, that felt like a very long time in Bahamas. So it's not about just saying, I'm passionate about some idealistic daydream kind of thing. It's that, what am I doing that makes me feel alive? Follow the energy. We'll get to that in a second. So forgetting what's behind, I strain toward what's ahead, and I press on toward the goal 
to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. We have somehow reduced this to a payoff, a trophy ceremony. Winning the prize, in this sense, is that I have the deep satisfaction of doing something that corresponds to who I am. The kid who is a C student who works really hard and gets B's wins a big prize. The kid that's an A-plus student and mails it in gets nothing because you say you mailed it in. They don't have a system here that's big enough for what your capacity is, so don't think of yourself as some genius. Put yourself in a place where now you're out of your comfort level and see how that works for you. Not as a punishment, but just as a way to stretch you. So Paul continues this line of thought by saying this. Finally, brothers and sisters, and this is in chapter 4. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Set your minds on these things. Why? As you do, it will either confirm that you're already in your sweet spot, yeah, I, I think my job is not that big of a deal, but I find so much beauty in it and satisfaction in it. Wow, Paul, thank you for encouraging me to set my mind on those things. What's, what is noble, what is right, what's pure, what's lovely, what's admirable, what's true, what's excellent and praiseworthy, because I've all of a sudden been able to realize I need to recommit to the very thing I'm taking for granted and feeling bored by. Why? Because I'm playing it safe within that world. If I take another risk within that world, I'll be in my sweet spot and I'll feel the passion again. King David in Psalm, Psalm um, 61 says, Lord, restore the joy to my salvation. This is design language. It's design language. Why? Design language is language like this. I'm curious can we talk about this? Why do you do what you do? What does it mean to you? It's not an interview. All these people graduating who are looking for jobs make a big mistake when they say, I want to go for an interview. No, don't do that. You'll get nothing. Go interview people that you think might have some insights into things that you might want to do. And when you sit down and talk to that person and say, hey, so thanks for taking the time for me. Um, I just want to ask you, what, why do you do what you do? And, and what do you think about it? As they talk to you about what they are doing, and, and, and they tell you that they're bored out of their gourd, or they love it and can't imagine that they're getting paid for it so good, that's a conversation that leads to some powerful things. So does it sound presumptuous talking about designing your life in Christ? No, no. It's good theology. It's essential bedrock theology for being a disciple of Jesus. Don't treat it as some luxury that people who have too much time and money can do. It's for people who are in the trenches going, they're shooting at me and those are real bullets. Lord, let's talk about the design of my life. It's really practical because you're saying, Lord, I'm curious, what is my life about? Is this the last day I'm supposed to live? Then show me how to lay my life down wisely. Lord, are these the people I'm, in a sense, feeling stuck with? Maybe these are the people I'm supposed to learn how to love so I can become the person you're preparing me to be for the next thing. If I don't get this lesson right, what other lessons am I going to need? Zechariah 4.10 says, Do not disparage small starts. 
curiosity, conversation, trying stuff, reframing stuff. Ah, oh, man, the first thing that I made didn't work. I wonder if I, that's a bad idea. Maybe I should redo it. You can't follow any industry without seeing all the stops and starts and all the disasters that they had to go through to figure out how to do what they thought was essential to do. And it's so neat to get to the end of it and see the success. What you don't see is all the blood, sweat, and tears it took them. And sometimes you, all you see are failures. And people would say, yeah, I, I pretty much failed. You don't have a big hero story at the end of all this? No. Well, what's your story then? It was worth trying. Oh, okay. Remember, it's a process, not perfection. And it happens in conversations and community. That's why we've been doing this thing in a second service called Conversations. If we can get people into conversations with each other around Christ, it forms community. And all of a sudden, people get insight and wisdom and understanding about who they are and maybe what they were created to do. And the more intentional you become in that, the more powerful it is. Do you want to be a good father? Become intentional. Start by saying, I have no idea how to be a good father. That's intentional. You want to be a good husband? Same thing. Only say it twice. I have no idea. I really have no idea how to be a good husband. You want to do anything at a high level? Be intentional. Be humble. Be vulnerable. Say, I, I'm not sure if I know how to do this. I think I do, and I want to learn how to do it. Do you got any thoughts for me? You don't go to a golf pro and say, I think I've perfected my swing. I've done it a thousand times. That golf pro would look at you and go, unfortunately, a thousand wrong ways of swinging. Um, I'll show you a few things that would maybe make it better in, in the next 30 tries. So getting input in community, through conversation, trying stuff, being humble and open and teachable. This is the power of what discipleship is. So when you do that awesome thing, you're not enamored of the awesome thing. You're enamored by the fact that God has done an awesome thing. And all these other things are wonderful, but that's not the thing. The thing is the change of my heart. What it is is God wants to change your heart and your way of seeing you. So that the humble thing that you're doing, you'd say, I love this. And when you say it with conviction, because it's authentic, people around you will also go, wow, that does sound awesome. If you apologize, oh, I do this, you know, it's just this. People will go, oh, you poor sod. Because they're just re reiterating and reinforcing what you just told them. I love this idea that if you and I take the time to say, what's most important to me? God draws us into this process of designing our lives for him. Designing our lives. Paul says it this way in Colossians. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. The same guy that started out by saying, I want to know Christ. Well, because you have no other options? No, because he is the best option he unlocks the mysteries of life. And so to that end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Do you believe that? If you're doing that, keep doing that. If you feel like that's beyond my capacity, start where your capacity is. Crawl, then walk, then run, then dance. Start where you are. Don't start where you aren't. 
Recognize where you aren't and where you want to go, but start where you are. And as you commit to that design process, a bias for action, commitment to conversation, an insatiable curiosity, realizing that failure is just part of a good process and that community is, is your friend, where the coaches and the mentors come from, then that very process is going to allow you to make decisions and changes to, to be that it could be you end up in a very different place and you're really happy about that. It's not a, oh, I failed, I meant to get here. It's like, no, I ended up where I should have been all along. I just didn't know it. Start today in Christ, being who you are. And with that design sensibility, and that simply means this openness to what God wants to do in you as you trust in him and try things in his name. You will be emulating the Apostle Paul and about every other person who you admire who's alive and mature in Christ. So I want to leave you with some time here to reflect on these things. Uh, this, this might sound a little bit cheeky and intrusive, but, go, but bear with me. We're going to have communion, but we're going to do it a little bit differently. We want to transition from the communion we've been having that feels so isolated, but we still want to do it in a way that makes you feel like you're not being exposed to more germs than you can bear, right? So we're going to, I'm going to do a, uh, give you a little bit of time to reflect on where you are, then... Um, I'm going to start with a benediction. Then I just ask you to pause for a moment and reflect about where you are, where you want Christ to meet you today. And then we have some tables set up here and there and outside where you can go, and there'll be some people standing there, and they will say, this is Christ's body given for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you. And you can still take that same little kit that, that has bread and some juice in it and, and sit down or go outside and, and receive communion. And then we're asking you, if there's any nudge at all in you that, wow, that really triggers some thinking in me. I'd love to have somebody pray for me. This is a normative thing, not a weird thing. It's like a normal thing. Go right around the corner to the prayer garden and say, I'd like a prayer. And whoever's there will say, yeah, I'll pray for you. And if you know what you need prayer for, tell them. They'll pray about that. If not, they'll just, great, I'll pray for you. And then you go over and get something to eat. And then at 11 o'clock, you come right back here. And we're going to have a conversation, a short conversation as a congregation, just to bring you up to speed about where we are, having come through COVID, where we want to go as we think God is leading us and guiding us to be sure that we're all uh, on the same page about what our intentions are. Okay? So here's what I'm asking you to do um, following the benediction and before you get communion. And it could take you 30 seconds or it could take you 10 minutes. Confess your sins to the Lord. Confess your fears and regrets and resentments and problems to the Lord. Confess, express your aspirations, your hopes, your dreams to the Lord. Why? He is the one who can answer them and lead you and guide you into the rest of the process. If you don't start there, you're starting at a deficit you're starting with your glass upside down and nobody can pour anything in it. Then, receive communion, come back, be part of this conversation. And then today, or during this week, think about the people you trust the most and you have the most confidence in who are spiritually mature. And share with them some of the things you were confessing and wrestling with. Say, hey, here's where I am. Do not ask them for advice. Simply ask them to listen 
And if they want to give you some feedback or clarification, let them do that. This is counsel versus advice. Counsel is, what do you think you should do? How can I pray for you as you do that? Advice is, you should do this. And if we don't like it, we dismiss the person and say, I'm off the hook. The advice didn't work. Nobody's off the hook. We're not even on a hook, but we're in a process. And it happens because we open ourselves up to other people and they say, wow, it's awesome you confess that. It's awesome that you're receiving God's forgiveness. Awesome that you're asking for his wisdom. He never denies anybody who asks for wisdom. And I'll be praying for you. The power of that is immense. You might say, I'm the last person who'd ever let anybody in. Then you'll be the last person in a room on your own. Let God use people to cheer you on in this process of designing your life. Because I can tell you, your sins, your fears, your regrets, your resentments, these problems are going to hold you back. But really what they are is a bridge, not a wall. Don't let them be a barrier. Let them be a bridge. Because as you also express your aspirations, your hopes, your dreams, God says, yeah, I'll lead you through all that other stuff to get there. Let people support you as you design your life in Christ. We all do. Every one of us, no exceptions, need that. And then as you, as you receive communion, you can thank God in prayer that he's with you, he's for you, he'll provide what you need to design a life that glorifies him and blesses you to be a blessing to others. Gosh, what a life. That's what we were born for. That's what we're being saved for. The Lord has brought you to this place in your life to show you how much he loves you and how much he wants you to know and experience his love. So I want to bless you and invite you to receive Holy Communion because on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. He took a cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Lord Jesus, I thank you and praise you that you have this great love for us. I feel so unworthy. And in my confusion and frustration, I... I I don't know where to turn. And, and, and yet, Lord, you've shown me that I can know you. So, Lord, I, my confession is I want to know you. And all of that means. I pray that for my brothers and sisters here. I pray that as we pause and then receive Holy Communion, as we receive prayer, as we nourish ourselves with some food and conversation, as we have a larger conversation as a congregation, you give us a sense of hope that you are leading us and guiding us to reflect your glory, to be people who are so alive in you that it spills over and blesses others around us. We pray this. This church needs this, Lord. This community needs this. This country needs this movement of your Holy Spirit among your people. And we pray this in Jesus' high and holy name. Amen. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord, who has everything you need and will release it as you walk in newness and fullness of life with him, may he give you this both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So please receive communion whenever you're ready. You'll have a prayer, have, have something to eat, and come back at 11.